as we try to make sense over the millennia of from whence do we come and where do we go. Is this the temporary way station between those two places, this, this life on earth? Or is this the whole thing? How can we imagine the presence of the pre-birth world or life and the post-death world or life with virtually no encounter with it that whispers to us of that possibility? How are we, for example, capable of imagining eternity, articulating the notion of eternity with no encounter with eternity to underwrite the imagining? How, for example, are we to account for the fact that we have this scheme of allegations that we shorthandedly call God and none of these come from an unmediated, direct and probably blistering encounter with God. Welcome to the Campfire Podcast. I am your host, Matthias Olsen. In this episode, I'll be talking with author, poet, and former grief counselor Stephen Jenkinson on the topics of grief, soil, and the origins of an orphaned culture. Yes, that is our culture that I'm referring to, our elder bereft, drunk on efficiency, consumerist, clear-cutting of forests, fracking of mountains, bottom-trawling of the oceans, culture. The unfortunate inheritance of our day. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Namaste Foundation for supporting Campfire Stories and the Campfire Podcast. I'd also like to momentarily place my hands, knees and forehead in the sand and with deep gratitude thank the members of the Campfire Stories Patreon family who make it possible for me and us to keep producing films and podcast episodes. Please allow me to mention a few of them by name. Camelia Freiberg, Nicole Alger, Magnus Nodelik, September Larsson, Mariama Kamara, Livsring Vedsilje Hystad, and Stellan Christiansson. And with that, I think we're ready for the show. So, I don't know, let's begin, I guess. <laughs> yeah, let's begin. Welcome back to the Campfire Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been growing more and more of my own food in the last few years. And we recently got some, some chickens that are quickly turning into little hens and roosters. So you could say that the agricultural revolution has been hitting home lately, as I've been taking steps away from the supermarket and towards farming for my family's sustenance. Also, um, I recently made a film about regenerative farming and food fermentation, a film called Into the Soil. So I've basically been into the soil lately, soil health. Um, I've also been rereading a book that's meant a lot for my understanding of the modern human's various dilemmas. Uh, it's a book called Ishmael, written by Daniel Quinn. So some of the questions today are going to be inspired from that book. Okay. Um, I'm going to... Just for the listener who may not know anything about this book, I'm going to attempt to, to sum it up. Um, there's three books, actually. It's um, Ishmael, My Ishmael, and The Story of B. But before I attempt to sum them up, I 
I'm wondering if you've read these books and what you might have taken away from them. Yes, I have. Uh, years ago, somebody uh, drew them to my attention. Uh, first of all, because the author is a divinity school um, either product or uh, perhaps a, no longer a devotee of divinity school life. I'm, I'm not sure where he landed, but uh, at least he and I had that in common. I believe he's just recently dead, too, which, if that's true, we don't have that in common, at least at the moment. What did I think of them? Well, um, you know, it's... Uh, He's he's more a gifted thinker, I think, than he is a storyteller. I hope that doesn't uh, that doesn't sound cruel, but uh, I do have a, a sense of these things uh, in in my own practice of them, and it's an idea driven collection of books rather than a, a sort of narrative accomplishment where the ideas are fruit uh, uh, on the vine, so to speak. And he employed uh, the story basically to to carry his ideas forward. Well, he's not the first, and, and it's by no means a crime to do it. But from a storytelling point of view, it's probably not the most compelling uh, event. Having said that, the ideas these days are uh, enormously useful, and I, I, I'm sure you found them so as well, as well as distressing, as well as um, indicting. Very little of it, I would say, is um, uh, absolving. There's a lot of in indictment in the in the stories, and uh, the fact that he puts um, the tutelage of mankind into the hands and in the mouth of a is it an orangutan, a gorilla? I've forgotten exactly. I think it may be gorilla. And, uh, you know, who's behind bars somewhere is um, probably worthy of contemplation all by itself. And, um, and the last one of the three that you mentioned, the story of B, is um, uh, a consideration of what it means to be an apostate. And uh, I probably found that one the most recognizable to me personally. And... Uh, I'm glad having, having, you know, picked at the details a little bit here, I should say I'm glad that they're in the world and I'm glad he was. And uh, some corner of the world and some people in it have been emboldened, no doubt, and, and, and deepened and challenged and a result, uh, come, become more human as a result of his labors. So I all but retract every misgiving I have and just say, uh, isn't it a fine thing that we're in the world at the same time that he and his books were? Hmm. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm now going to attempt to give sort of a summarization of w my takeaways from the book. Obviously, any listener um, who's interested or, and intrigued should pick them up at the local library or wherever they pick up their books. And, um, and see for them. So there's a lot in it, but here's the most important thing that I've taken away. Um, so the basic idea behind Ishmael, at least in my understanding, is that at the time of the agricultural revolution, some 10,000 years ago, there were multiple tribes spread, ac across the spread across the globe, each consisting of human beings, knowing exactly how to be human beings in this world, in what we today might call an ecological sense. And in a number of places, including in the Fertile Crescent of today's Middle East, about 10,000 years ago, a new kind of tribe appeared, the totalitarian farmer. So the surrounding tribes had been farming too, to varying degrees, but none had relied solely on farming and animal husbandry for food. So at this time, the totalitarian farmer known in the books as the tribe of the takers, was but one of thousands or tens of thousands of different tribes. But they soon grew and started to overrun their neighbors in all directions. Why did this happen? Well, because the takers broke a law of nature that says you're allowed to fight to your full capacity in order to feed yourself and your young, but you're not allowed to prohibit others from doing the same. 
So in essence, you cannot put a fence around a piece of land and say, this here is only mine. This is not for the wolf or the worm or the bee. It is only for me. A law that could be summarized the following way. The earth does not belong to humans. Humans belong to the earth. So because they broke this law, the tribe of the takers ended up with more food than they needed, which in turn made the tribe grow larger. More food equals more people from one generation to the next. And more people equals a larger need for land to be put under cultivation. So the takers expand until they get to a neighboring tribe's area. And at that point there's conflict and usually the well-fed and numerous tribe of the takers emerge victorious. And so it's been going and the tribe of the takers have kept expanding to all the corners of the earth at the expense of all the other tribes they've encountered. And this expansion is still ongoing today, 300 generations later, and is now about 99% uh, complete, maybe 100 by now, with just maybe a few remaining groups of hunter-gatherers left in the most inaccessible corners of the globe. Um, so here, to my question. <laughs> um, so Daniel Quinn, the author of Ishmael, he traces back the starting point of the mess of today, known as the Anthropocene, to the agricultural revolution. But how do you see it? When, what, and how, maybe even why, do you think we started on the path that's led us to today's doomsday times? What do you think the beginning might have been? Okay, it's a, it's a vast question. I mean, the, I think the first thing to, to do is build in some caution into the notion that we've, we're on a road uh, because the road uh, uh, analogy suggests that certain things are inevitable and have been for uh, an awful long time and that this, this is a, basically a given that everything was, was headed in this direction, even the casualties were headed in this direction. And it's, it's really challenging for contemporary people not to see things as in the sway of things, not to see things as, as domino-like. I mean, I think our sense of uh, fatalism and fate tends us in that direction uh, uncritically and probably unawares. Uh, and the reason I mention that is because a sense of what's to be done, before I get into maybe what happened, the sense that we're trying to gather around ourselves about what's to be done is continually defeated by a sense that the disasters were inevitably occurring uh, and a consequence of the involuntary uh, momentum that has borne us along lo these many uh, millennia. So if we can simply think a bigger thought than everything was coming to this, it may contribute to our sense of what might be able to be done in the teeth of something that seems incontrovertible. I'm not persuaded that it is incontrovertible, even though in all the many interviews I've done over the years, I seem to come across as the most doomed among us <laughs> in my characterization of things. And I'm not, I'm not persuaded that that's true. Okay, that's the caveat. Um, I don't think one thing happened. First of all, we should say it's really important that we become wondrous in the face of this question and not authoritative. Uh, I don't know what happened. Um, there's no record of what happened, and maybe we could begin there. Why is there no record of people looking back on a particularly dismal season where something that was working ceased to work or everyone began to work and as such something ceased happening? Why is there no record? Because nobody knew it happened when it happened. Nobody... Uh, had a kind of 
historical critical formulation that was able to observe in the context of one lived lifetime a shift so seismic and fundamental that it was irrevocable. It's another way of saying that it's, it's not clear to me that humans really have the capacity or should have the capacity to see within the context of their one lived lifetime a change so immense that they pronounce it some kind of rupture from uh, the known to the unknown, from the, from the inheritable to the disinherited, things of that kind. I would locate the egregious uh, rupture in human history, the rupture between the human or the rupture of the human from the everything else, not so much in agriculture per se. I mean, I, I know that Quinn and lots of other people are so distressed about the advent of agriculture that um, the notion of back to the land has a, a real grim uh, tonality to it when, when that's born in mind. But, and so domestication is, is dimly uh, thought of, you know, living things, owning other living things, even though domestication really doesn't come from a sense of ownership. It tends to be the other way around. Domestication, by virtue of the word, is whispering to us that it was the con- it was the circumstance in which um, certain living things were brought into the into the house, the domus of other living things. It's not clear that that indicates dominion, even though dominion comes from the word domus as well. It may have indicated something much closer to uh, closeness, a close a closer way of life than was once lived out when the animals were at a great distance from the humans. I would locate the great uh, invisible sorrow of the human rupture from the divine, which is the world in my take on things, around the advent of something called surplus. This is a word now uh, that I don't think anybody's troubled by. I've never heard anybody uh, rear back at the mention of surplus or really contend with it much at all. So I'll add my little contribution and suggest something like this. Imagine that humans began to the extent that there is a beginning for humans. I mean, when we eventually stumbled forth in our uh, humanity... One of the things that you could characterize all of us as being at the time is animists, which is to say that we would have been possessed of the idea that everything was alive and nothing was less alive than us. We were not less alive than anything. And this was probably our camaraderie with life, is that we were humanists in a living world. And humanism would have been the only available, let's call it re- religiosity or spiritual practice. And the practice would have been ongoing and literally available to you every waking minute of every day. There was nothing, I was going to say, use the word proof, but I would retract that and say there was no other possibility. Because if you were to imagine an alternative to animism, as an animist, what would it have been? I mean, this is a feat of imagination for us because we're fundamentally not animists as modern people. But if all of humanity around you was animistic, could you even fathom the notion of something other than animistic as a possible understanding of life, or maybe a better way to say it is, a fundamental misunderstanding of life. What would it be? And um, at the risk of sounding biblical about it, I would probably suggest to you that this is the origin of, of hell. Before I get to surplus, maybe hell. Hell would be 
for an animist, the possibility that something's in the world but not alive and not possessed of all the characteristics of life that living both endows and also requires, including aspects of soul and consciousness and uh, uh, the capacity for attachment and, you know, living faithfully and so on. So hell might be the alternative to animism. I've never heard anyone describe themselves as an inanimist, but that truly is our default religion now. So, so how do we come by the notion of surplus? Hasn't there always been surplus? Uh, no, I would say in a, in a phrase, there's no question there hasn't always been surplus. Surplus is not a point of view only. It's a characterization of your relationship to stuff. Okay, so let me see if I can do this slowly to make it accessible. So as an animist who's, hunter, who's a hunter-gatherer to some extent, and a, let's call it a nominal farmer to a certain extent as well, that person, that family, that clan, that tribe is characterized by a way of life that is not acquisitive. It's consuming, but it's not acquisitive. How do we know it probably wasn't acquisitive? One of the answers is, well, they didn't, they appear not to have had any kind of counting system beyond the following. There's one, that's what you can hold in one hand, and there's two, that's the other hand. And then there's three, if you bring these two hands together and balance things. Maybe there's four, a pile that still requires your hands to manage it. And then the only other number I can imagine that ensued after four is too much, which is to say, uh, you know, in this way of life, if you begin to gather more than you can carry, you become encumbered. And the life lessons that would ensue from that would have been mostly practical, not moral order life lessons, just practical. If you're semi-nomadic and you're acquiring stuff, you have a problem. It's called too much stuff. And the solution to it is a culturally endorsed solution, which is the recirculation or redistribution of stuff, right? So you don't have self-storage units on the edge of town, and you don't have town, and you don't have storage. And I'm not making it sound like this is, this is the most wondrous way of life, although I probably have a secret envy for it, because the flip side of this would be that scarcity would be your constant companion and a sense of a life lived liminally would have been part of the deal. It wouldn't, I don't think, been, have been seen as something either catastrophic or punitive that the world was somehow turning against you if there wasn't enough food, if there wasn't enough shelter. It would probably have been the default reality interrupted occasionally by plenitude. That's what I'm imagining. I mean, that's really all I can do. So then when numeracy develops in the same uh, area of the world that Quinn was talking about, it's a reflection of something more than it's a cause of something. And which came first is hard to tell. Whether people began to acquire because of a semi-sedentary life and as such needed a way of tracking the stuff that they began to acquire seems to be a likelihood. But why would you need to track it? Well, because it was changing hands. In other words, it's the beginning of the, of the emergence of commerce from the old practice of trade. And we probably don't have the time to go into immense detail about that. But here's where surplus comes in. We are able to say back and forth and be intelligible to each other, you and I, if I say something like the God of the river that I'm looking at right now outside the window as I'm talking to you. And you as a, as a fellow northern person wouldn't be too stretched to, to hear in my phrase at least an archaic understanding of once upon a time we were closer to the river than we're able to be now. So we have a phrase... 
the god of the river or the goddess of grain, maybe bring us closer to Mesopotamia. So this sounds like this is the full recovery of the era that Quinn was talking about and that I've been alluding to. But I would suggest to you that the linguistics of it suggest otherwise. The linguistics of it is actually telling us that the rupture has already taken place when you have a formulation that includes the goddess of grain. What's the rupture, the unsuspected rupture that is masked by the, the allowance in the modern era that there may have been a god somehow or a goddess attached to this food stuff? Well, I think the rupture is something like this. We have to go backwards in a domino effect. So you have the goddess of grain, which is to say that the grain in some fashion or other belongs to the goddess. And you could imagine, well, if you're cultivating that understanding along with cultivating the grain, then there must be a a remarkable balance that has a lot of humility in it on the human side. and, um, And all must be well when there's a goddess of grain. But I'm suggesting to you that the earlier incarnation of that was something like the grain was the goddess. It was not a portion of the goddess. It was not a possession of the goddess. It was not a symbol or a metaphor for the goddess. It was the living goddess, her very self, that you were eating, that you were cultivating, that you were gathering, that you were trading. So what's the problem then with surplus? Literally, too much God. That's what surplus inadvertently confesses to and begins the sequence of indictment uh, by which modern people can be recognized. In other words, when you are trading in surplus, you are crafting an understanding of of a living thing, in this case food, being something that you can you can engage with beyond your need. Your need ceases to be, uh, let's call it, part of the natural order of things and begins to be distorted. And the distortion contributes to the notion that you're no longer trafficking in God. You're trafficking in the stuff of God in the mutually held possession, you and the God. Eventually, you're trading on behalf of God. And then when you come into the land of commerce, you're trading and God's over there. So this is a a catastrophe of uh, unimagined consequence, really, I'd say. And... um, The idea that I've just suggested to you in short form here isn't somehow hostile to what uh, Quinn's idea was about it's taking place in the same era. All I'm doing is focusing not so much on the advent of agriculture per se or the tremendous um, exponential range of change that ensued when populations began to increase and all those things that he's alluded to. But I'm suggesting very quietly that surplus is the thread that we might pull to begin to wonder about what happened, not so much demographically, but mythically and poetically, where we begin to be able to trade in something that an animist's orientation to life would not have forbidden, it would have not been able to imagine. Rather than the trade being overseen by God, in commerce you are literally trading God, which becomes an unbearable thought, which can only be contended with by separating God from what you are trading in. And your capacity to be an animist in a living world is compromised and corroded and corrupted, and what Quinn calls the era of the great forgetting ensues as a consequence of that animist's trauma. That's my take on it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, So 
when I was a child, when I was around eight or nine, I went to Sunday school. And there were a good many things I did not understand from the stories of the Bible. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the Bible as a collection of stories told and retold around countless camp- campfires thousands of years ago, only eventually to be written down and compiled, then these stories might say something about what was going on in the world in the time they were conceived. What do you think the story of the fall, where Adam and Eve taste the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what do you think it might have meant in its original telling? Well, again, Matthias, there's probably no original telling, quote unquote. In other words, people don't literally sit there storyless, <laughs> I don't think, and then, quote, make up a story. I don't think that's actually what happens. This is a storyteller speaking to you about it. I think what happens is we assemble, reassemble, disassemble, and assemble again what's been made available to us, including discoveries and thoughts and 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 sorrows and losses and all of those things. And the you know, we don't we don't have a limitless range of possibility as storytellers. What we have is the makings of story and the capacity to see things related somehow in that fashion. That's what stories finally are. are uh, we're, we're making available a scheme of relationship between things that would otherwise be disparate and threaten uh, meaninglessness. So it's not to say that we're simply recounting. And I, I'm, I'm fairly sure that the, quote, story of the fall, unquote, falls into that category of things assembled after the fact, uh, a scramble to catch up to an unimagined and unremembered thing, an advent of something that predates us, but now mysteriously includes us at the same time. One of the things I think the fall, the story of the fall is, is a recognition of the catastrophic consequences of birth. Which is to say that as we, I say we on behalf of all of humanity here now, as we try to make sense over the millennia of from whence do we come and where do we go, is this the temporary way station between those two places, this this life on earth? Or is this the whole thing? How can we imagine the presence of the pre-birth world or life and the post-death world or life with virtually no encounter with it that whispers to us of that possibility? How are we, for example, capable of imagining eternity, articulating the notion of eternity with no encounter with eternity to underwrite the imagining? How, for example, are we to account for the fact that we have this scheme of allegations that we shorthandedly call God And none of these come from an unmediated, direct, and probably blistering encounter with God. So, the fall. Obviously, somewhere in there, the whisper campaign goes as follows. There was a time before all this, uh, what Leonard Cohen, you know, so gorgeously said, Um, there was a time when you let me know what's really going on below. But now, oh my God, I'm forgetting the other half. Well, anyway, it's in the song Hallelujah, if you wanted to listen to it. Um, There's a million allusions to the fact that it hasn't always been as it is now. Generally speaking, that's nostalgia. 
if you hover a minute over the word nostalgia, its etymology is bracing. Nostalgia is the pain upon returning. That's what the word actually means. The pain that comes from returning, which you could also say the pain that comes from remembering. And it's the literal root of the phrase in English, home sick. And that's what the fall is. The fall is fundamentally, as a story, a nostalgic, almost involuntary memory of a time when it wasn't like this. The remembering of which brings little or no real comfort. Lots of instruction, lots of imprecation, lots of finger-wagging, but not much really in the way of, of assurance that humans are capable of something other than transgression, misadventure, and mishap. So, you know, back to the birth idea, and I know these answers are insanely long, but, I mean, you're asking very big questions here, and both of us are agreeing to not take 18 hours to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so my apologies for the v- volume here. But um, so, so what happens when you're born? I mean, my best guess, having been through it, is your capacity to live your pre-birth life is extinguished as a consequence of drawing breath. The tragedy of this thing is, is unspeakable from an individual human's point of view, that the cost of coming to consciousness is the annihilation of your old memory. What an, what an unbelievable arrangement it is in some... Not, I shouldn't call it unbelievable. It's how to live such an arrangement, to, how to live the realization of it even. So many cultures have uh, practices around birth, around uh, first steps of an infant that are in part designed to resurface among all the celebrants, the understanding that there was a life before this child was among us. And that life, we do everything we can to cultivate in the child the memory of that time. Why? Because the rest of us have forgotten it. That's why. We haven't forgotten that there could be such a thing, but that's, that's where our memory ceases. And so we cultivate in the newborn something like a capacity and a willingness to, to bear to us the story that has been lost to us as a result of our enduring in this world. And of course, one generation to the next, it tends not to work out so terrifically well in terms of... Uh, uh, recourse to the, those old understandings. And so we have stories that are do, the, do what we can do to approximate uh, how we imagine it could have been and to give us a way of imagining it again. That's one layer, it seems to me, is the, the eclipse of the mythic life by the conscious life. And so there's a lot of sorrow. Sadly, though, the story of the fall is taken up much less with sorrow and much more with a sense of trespass. And this is going to allow me to bind this answer to the answer about surplus of a few minutes ago. So you have a circumstance in the Bible to generalize about the, the fall story where there's, there's a strange kind of warning that on the surface of it makes no sense. Not the content of the warning, but the fact that there's any warning at all. If, after all, humans are given dominion over the world, which is a very questionable if, but let's roll with it for a moment, and we have dominion over everything except this one thing, which we exercise no dominion over at all, and our only choice is to obey it's a rather strange arrangement. The, the, the tension between those two things is a strange arrangement, really. Uh, and it's hard to attribute it to a divine mind 
or intention, it seems to me. Here's why it strikes me as strange. You have a circumstance where we're encouraged to understand ourselves as imbued with this authority, uh, that everything has been entrusted to us with, with virtually no limitation, only this one exception. What are we to do with, our, with the obligations of dominion when it comes to this one particular tree? What, what becomes of not just our habits, but our charge, our, our ontological responsibility from this story's point of view? Is it just set aside strangely and, and seemingly purposeless, purposelessly? Or are we to understand the distinct possibility that by not partaking of this, the fruits of this particular tree, we have available to us an understanding that is otherwise not available when we exercise our dominion? In other words, could it be so that the, the deepest of all the life lessons available to us by which we can act on our stewardship of the world is not available by our stewardship? It's available at the edge of our stewardship. In other words, it's available at the edge of our capacity for dominion. Is it, are we able to learn more about why we're here and for what, from our limitations, then we can learn from all our abilities and our skills. And that's what I'm suggesting. And the notion of trespass here is a refusal to recognize the, the deep instruction, the mandate of instruction, the the divine orientation of this instruction that comes to us from our frailties and our limits. Well, nobody needs me, a lesson from me and what it means for humans to outlive their, the limitations that are entrusted to them. That's what I would say, not imposed upon them or us, but entrusted to us instead. In other words, our frailties are part of the things we're responsible for it seems to me, in this kind of primordial state. So where do we get the notion of trespass and punishment, subsequent punishment and all of that? It probably comes, my guess, from an unwillingness and then finally a forgetting of the ability to learn from limit and frailty, which is an animus understanding. As I said earlier, the animus understanding is that, that shortages or shortfalls or shortcomings all of these things are the natural order of things. None of these things contribute to an understanding that we're being punished but from, from the great beyond by virtue of not being able to acquire. Think of all the, the cave paintings in, uh, in uh, France and Spain and I guess Portugal as well. And one of the things you see there is what they, they call uh, hunting magic. It would appear that these are all prayerful supplications in one form or another, not toothless supplications, but supplications of people who have a dynamic understanding as animists of their relationship to that which grants them life, what they're hunting, the animals that they're hunting, basically. And they're pleading through these uh, pictorial arrangements for the animals to, to grant to the humans another day of life in the most fundamental communion available to humans, which is the partaking of life in order to live. The, the, the grand confoundment that in order for something to live, something dies. And the one that lives gets to do that someday. That's the fullness of the magic. Gets to die someday in order that something might live. In the meantime, it's the other way around. And there's something so confounding about that arrangement from an inanimous point of view because we've already exempted ourselves from the, the fullness of the scheme, no? So we're no longer part of the scheme in the sense that we're not, we don't agree to be food. We don't agree to be prey. And finally, we don't agree 
to die. We don't agree to the matrix of life that dictates our death to us and entrusts it to us. Right? So, so sadly, um, the, the, the attribution of punishment that comes from uh, the, the Genesis story is maybe the, the greatest misapprehension of the story. I, it's not a hard misapprehension to make, of course, because it seems to be all but written there. But you'll notice if you study the sequence that there was a time where nobody died in the story. Nobody died and all was well. And it's characterized as a garden. I'm not sure that's the best translation from Hebrew to English. But that's the one we were most commonly using. So this is already a cultivator's vision of what primordial life must have been. There was some order to it, and the order granted to us our lives, and there was very little in the way of striving where that was concerned. Something happened, or something stopped happening. The result of it clearly is, the story tells you that that's how death came into the world, as a consequence of misstepping, of overstepping our boundaries, or of, uh, of uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the basic childish word for misbehavior. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we, uh, we didn't do what we were told. Uh, and the consequence of that uh, is uh, a sense of primordial trespass that's been with us ever since. My guess is that the sense of dislocation from what granted us our life predated any sense of trespass. That's, that's what a certain order of humans did with an understanding of alienation from the natural order of things and from the, the, the withering of their sense of animism is that they retroactively intuited a punitive aspect to it and attributed that to the divine and to the natural order. And, you know, from that day to this, and Quinn is very lucid on this point, nobody's ever worked harder than cultivator types just to get by. And that toil is one of the inheritances of that transgressive understanding of how all of these things came to be. Sorry for the length of that, but that's, uh, that's the rudiments of it, as I understand it. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. That's beautiful. Um, I'm going to take us back momentarily to uh, Sunday school. Okay. When I was a child, um, where, like I said, uh, there were a lot of stories that I didn't understand. But the, the, the one that took the cake, the most puzzling story of all, was without a doubt the one about Cain and Abel, mm -hmm. the first children of Adam and Eve. So firstborn Cain becomes a farmer and secondborn Abel a sheep herder. And God completely mysteriously, at least to me as an eight-year-old, disapproves of Cain's offerings from his field, but approves of Abel's offerings of a slaughtered lamb. So Cain gets jealous and kills his brother. What? As a child, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. What is your understanding of that story? Better to ask me what is my misunderstanding of that story, I think. Um, th these things are, you know, their age doesn't make them vast, but the scale and the capacity to confound a young mind makes them vast. And, and so it whispers something like, go slowly with this. Uh, you won't lose anything by going slowly and by uh, making a, a friend of your uncertainty in the matter. You know, obviously, there's got to be in there something of, of a collective memory of a time where nomads were created, or let's call it semi-nomadic life was created. How were, what do you mean semi-nomadic life was created? I mean... I suspect it was the first order. I mean, all the great uh, peregrinations out of Africa have all been characterized by nomadic or semi-nomadic waves of humanity 
moving across the world. So I, I think I'm on solid ground there. But I'm suggesting to you that nomads are actually created by sedentary people. If everyone's a nomad, no one's a nomad. If everybody's moving across the face of the world, basically all the time, I don't mean incessantly every day, I mean in terms of an understanding of a way of life, which includes an understanding of any kind of, quote, ownership of a particular piece of ground or any of those things, that the old order would have been that people moved. And this movement only becomes observable to humans as a self-conscious uh, action when some people stop moving, when the pattern, if you will, is broken. And as soon as it's broken, then the pattern comes into view as a primordial order, as a prior arrangement, as an arrangement that comes out of the mist towards us because there was no awareness of it before the rupture took place. See, so strangely, pattern becomes available to us only when it ceases to prevail. And we intuit backwards, not only in time, but in some sense of primordial order and uh, instinct about chaos and all of these things uh, after the fact. And that's where uh, nomads came from. They came from the mists. Uh, nomads became nomads to who? To sedentary people. Why did people stop moving around? Well, you know, we only have so long to talk here, but um, uh, we know that it happened. So maybe that's enough for the moment. And as it happened, you know, the, the sheep, this is a sheep farmer speaking to you right now. I don't have the opportunity to roam the countryside with my sheep. I have to manage the pastures with fencing as best as I can uh, to keep them alive through the fullness of the growing season and some promise for the, for the wintertime. By which I'm saying to you that it's, it's also clear to me that um, herding sheep, uh, which seems to be, or goats, seems to be right up there with the oldest of uh, transient human activities that's not just humans together, is very compatible with a nomadic way of life. But you have to remember that you're not actually driving the sheep anywhere. Not in those days. In those days, you were following the sheep. Which is to say, you're, you're on the cusp of the days of totemic relationship with animals, with sheep, with the kind of semi-domestication of sheep and dogs, particularly. Wolves, you know, into dogs. How do, what, do, what do you mean by this? Uh, I, I'm suggesting that uh, sheep go where they go, you follow them. It turns out to work fairly well for you if, you're, if you do so, if you're smart enough to follow the sheep. Why? Because their nose are closer, are closer to the ground than yours. They know where the good stuff is. As you made your way, following the sheep, pretending to guide them, one of the consequences is that you die along the way over the fullness of you know, your tribal life. There is no cemetery but your dead are interned basically where they fall. Isn't it true? And then you you move on through the seasons and so forth. And isn't it true that all the places where the humans die and are buried tend to be tend to produce the, the greenest grass a, as a generalization? Of course it's true. It's true metabolically. It's true uh, soil health-wise. And who knows this? Better than the humans, the sheep do. And the sheep will lead you back to your ancestral boneyard. In those days, that's no doubt what happened. And by virtue of the sheep's faithful attending to the quality of the grass, they bring you to the place where you can now be sustained by the old life of your dead ancestors in the form of the milk that comes from the sheep who are eating the grass that's propagated by the decomposing body of your ancestors. It's a, it's a mythic scaled understanding that 
is utterly breathtaking to a sedentary person who has no such myth available to them. At this point, probably you and most people are listening goes, well, what about the Cain and Abel thing? How does this come in at all? And the answer is, I'm not sure, but let me see if I can make some kind of link. So I'm suggesting to you that the, the sheep-informed life of humans was not a life that introduced any kind of rupture in the animist understanding as I gave it to you. If anything, uh, the sheep-led life of, of pastoral humans would have been a kind of life where the reminder about your participation in the great cycle and your access to your ancestors and so on would have been so underwritten by the innate sheepness of the sheep that you would have forever been enthralled to the sheep rather than in charge of them, enthralled to them. Now we know eventually people stopped doing this and then eventually more people than not stopped doing it. The question then becomes in this long period of transition, which is a probably not the most useful way to characterize a kind of rupture in the old understanding. In the period in which this transition is being lived out, who do the pastoralists become to the townies? Who are they? What are they? Are they... Are they recognized as kin anymore? What does their way of life, that, that is, what does the pastoralist way of life do to the person no longer having a lived memory of a time when their association with the living world was as intense and available and as compelling as the pastoralists? By which I'm suggesting to you that what the story might, in, among other things, include a memory of is a time when the shepherd was the subject of some kind of root primordial envy on beha- uh, you know on the on the part of the the people living in town and envious humans are amongst the most dangerous humans on the planet because envy brooks no solution The only way to contend well with envy is to acquire what you envy in others. And then, even then, it's not clear. Okay, so how to understand the the violence? Maybe that's one way of understanding it. How to understand that the offering was more precious to God when it came from a pastoralist uh, than from somebody who is a sedentary person? Maybe I've suggested some origin of that in this recounting as well. I'm not, I'm not saying giving this answer to, which is the first time I've really wondered about it, I should say, in order to absolve the story of its, uh, of its uh, moral order problems and hangnails. I'm trying to make sense of it by wondering aloud about it, and making sense is not the same thing as breaking the will of the story and bending it to my purposes. It's dumbfounding. But I suspect all of the primordial creation stories that humans uh, are compelled by are memories dislocated from the times they're remembering. And so in the answer, I've tried to give you some sense of what the time might have been that such a story is involuntarily remembering and in a little bit incoherently remembering. We have to do an immense amount of remembering on our own, most of which has tragic underpinnings, to come to an understanding of a kind of story of primordial tragedy such as, such as the fall. Mm. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Um, so... You sometimes describe yourself as a recovering monotheist and you distinguish very carefully between God singular and <laughs> and God's plural. Could you talk of that plural S attached to God and of what it means to you? Um, I could, 
and at my peril I will. Um, in no particular order. Uh, the first observation is the remarkable lack of um, um, reciprocity between many God religions and people and one God religions and people. And the, the lack of reciprocity comes to this, as far as I've been able to tell. We know that the many God people are a real problem for the one God people. It's in the nature of the one God orientation to not be very tolerant about the many God orientation. And the amazing thing about that intolerance is it's not reciprocated. And I don't know that this makes many God people better people, but at least it's observable that their many Godedness has the capacity to include the one Godedness. Whereas you can't say that if you were to turn the tables and ask the one Godedness to simply, you know, exercise the uh, the attributes that are supposed to come with fidelity to the one God and extend understanding to the many gods. It's just not available. It's never seemed to be in the cards. Even if the one God people secretly or overtly, um, let's say, accept the presence of many God people, the secretly what they're saying is the many God people are just confused that these are many fa faces of the one God. One way or another, they're about trying to change <laughs> the many God take on things. So th there's the first ob observation to make is that in history, the many God people have room for the one God people. That's what many gods mean. It includes the God who thinks that he typically is the only one. And in fact, they may have gone even further and say, that is the one God that their many God religion was not able to come up with on its own. And they needed the appearance of the monotheist in their midst to realize that they had not included the only God amongst their gods. So there's the first strange wrinkle in the thing. And the second thing uh, to my mind might be this. The reason I'm at pains to capitalize the G and put an S on the end at the same time is to contend with that intolerance, is to articulate it and contend with it without arguing. I don't see any merit in arguing this thing out, but to point out the, you know, the, the presence of, of tolerance and intolerance is not a, a bad thing to do. I wonder, for example, if there were, as I said in one of my previous answers, if, if all gods were gods of place, if that's what God was, a particular place, not inhabiting a particular place or owning it or a creator of it, but the place itself was a god. I wonder what's become of them all from that those days to these. If I'm wrong about it and there was no such time, then nothing's become of them because there was no them in the first place. But if there was such a thing, what becomes of gods who no longer are on the receiving end of, of human understanding, of human supplication, of, of uh, human prayerfulness? I wonder what becomes of the gods of place when the places themselves are bulldozed or mined or flooded or, or uh, some other desecration is visited upon them. Our, our take as monotheists, involuntary monotheists, is to discount the whole possibility of the degradation of the divine. That is something about the divine that takes on all comers and prevails. That's our take on things. That's what monotheism does to our imagination. Is It, it is, banishes the possibility that the divine is somehow diminished, not just by our uh, faulty ministrations, but certainly by them as well. But if you allow in the possibility that there's something about the divine that suffers as a consequence of human misunderstanding, then you allow the distinct possibility that the old gods of place 
even in the so-called new world that I'm sitting and talking to you right now, that those old gods of place have turned into something else or are constantly misapprehended as demonic, as uh, malevolent, uh, and the rest, simply because they don't resemble our our monotheistic understanding of divine. And we may misinterpret as punitive what is in fact distant instead. I was on the Mediterranean sinking in the course of a storm, maybe, oh God, 30 or 40 years ago now. And one of the things that occurred to me is that most of the humans I know tend to attribute malevolence to a storm uh, on the Mediterranean. That is, somehow every wave is out for you. And it causes a shudder to go up and down our, our mortal spine. But I think the greater, the greater uh, sorrow and suffering of humans by far is the inability to attribute malevolence to the natural world and to find indifference there instead when it comes to us. And sadly, I, I think that that indifference, when we exercise our indifference towards the gods of place, it may carry a similar kind of injury that we ourselves experience when we look upon the made world and find it so far from us. Hmm. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this interview and wish that this was not the end of it, you're in luck because it isn't. Stay tuned for part two.